Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Hello, welcome everyone. It is a joy to learning with us here today at Valley Beit Midrash in partnership with uh, the Hebrew Educational Alliance in Colorado. We will be learning with Dr. Rabbi Avital Shostein um, about the Shemitah from biblical narratives to contemporary perspectives. Uh, Dr. Rabbi Avital Hoshstein is president of Hadar in Israel. She's done research and taught at many institutions, among them the Shalom Hartman Institute, where she was a research fellow, and the Pardes Institute, where she was the Rosh Kalel. She is one of the founders of Shira Hadasha in Jerusalem. Along with Professor Kana Safre, she wrote the book Women Out, Women In, in the place of in the place of women in Midrash. Her PhD focuses on the eighth chapter of Tractate Sanhedrin and utilizes a literary read of halakhic material combining tools from gender studies. She received ordination from Rabbi Daniel Landis and from the Beit Midrash for Rabbi right. Um, it's a joy to have you here and we will be looking at the diverse biblical narratives of Shemitah, how they play out practically and ideologically in later Talmudic and halakhic sources and ponder what this is, has to do with our current day awareness of the challenge and threat to sustainability. And with that, I will turn it over to you to learn. Thank you so much, Pam. It's so nice to be with all of you here today. Those who are uh, in an environment and situation where they can turn on their cameras should feel free to do that um, and we'll, we'll learn together. Um, some of you may know that in Israel today, we are in the seventh, the sabbatical year the Shemitah year. And we usually associate Shemitah with issues that have to do with the land. But most of us are not landowners. And so how are we going to think about this year and its values? And do they pertain to us at all and in what way? So those are some of the questions that led me to this learning. And there was a new aspect of Shemitah that I was exposed to as I was preparing actually last year preparing for this Shemitah year, for this seventh sabbatical year, one that I wasn't very much aware of in the past. Um, and I felt kind of closely related to some of the values that had to do with sustainability. And I want to take you on a little bit of a, a traveling route with me from the biblical narrative, or I should say in plural narratives, because we have almost opposing ones in the Torah, in the Bible, and then see a little bit what the rabbis did with that and how that plays out with simply how we're supposed to treat fruits and vegetables on this year and what that might teach us about sustainability. So there's three anchors to what I wanna to do today. The first is to focus on the verses and their narratives. The second is to focus on a confusion that I think the Torah assumes people have when they're allowed to eat, okay? A mistake we made, we make, we as human beings, make when we're allowed to eat things and how the Torah confronts that mistake. And then talk about uh, the holiness of the fruit of Shemitah, this unique fruits and vegetables of Shemitah and see if those values can play out in other environments. Um, so the first source is from Shmot, um, from Exodus. Um, and 
We are in the midst of what's called the Book of the Covenant, Sefer Habrit, the covenant that was given um, at Sinai. And these chapters are considered um, to be part of the covenant, part of what was given at Mount Sinai. Okay, so a continuation of that kind of array of laws and their elaboration. And these laws talk about all kinds of things, of how people interact with each other, um, how do you deal with um, slaves and what your marketplace should look like and what you do when you find something that is lost and so on and so forth. In the midst of all of that, we also have the laws of Shemitah, of the, sev of the seventh year. And these are the verses. Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yields. And in the seventh, you shall let it go and abandon it. Let the needy among your people eat of it. And what they leave, let the wild beasts eat. You shall do the same with your vineyards and your olive groves. So there's a few things that we can notice here in these verses. First of all, it's talking about the basic three types of crops that exist in the Middle East, okay, that exist um, on my end of the world. I'm, I'm based in Jerusalem, which is also a good opportunity to say that I apologize. If I put in too many Hebrew words, please stop me and ask what they mean. You're probably doing a favor to the person in the little square next to you, okay? So the three basic types of food that we eat here in the Middle East is, first of all, wheat. That's the... Um, the tvu'ah that we're talking about, okay, what we gather in the field. And then we have wine, kerem, um, the vineyards, and we have oil, okay, and the olive groves. So those are the three kind of basic types of foods that one is supposed to eat or that one eats here. And it starts with a description of the six years. And the six years you sow and you gather. And then what happens on the seventh? It's very interesting because the seventh year is a positive commandment, right? We sometimes think of the sabbatical year like we do of Shabbat as a year of, as a time to stop, right? A time not to work. But that's not what it says here. You shall let it go. The, the act that we're talking about is doing this, okay? To release, to let go, maybe relinquish ownership, right? To abandon, right? You abandon something, that you don't own. And now comes a really, really interesting part of the story. Look at the next verse and ask yourselves, who is supposed to eat from this crop? Okay, who is supposed to eat? Let the needy among your people eat of it. And what they leave, let the wild beasts eat. Who is missing from this story? The person who owns the land. Okay, the person who owns the land according to the narrative in Exodus, is not allowed to eat from this crop on the seventh year, okay? It's meant only for those who are not landowners, right? Those who are needy to the degree that the, the forbidding on the owner to eat is so extreme that it's better for the animals to eat, the wild beasts to eat, than the owner, okay? So it's a year where the owner relinquishes ownership to the degree that they may not touch anything in the field. Two things come up from this. First of all, when we look at the verb to abandon, okay, there's two possibilities of what 
I'm abandoning, right? Of what the object I'm abandoning in. One possibility, which is I think the way we are accustomed to read these verses, is that I have to abandon the land. I abandon the land. But there's another possibility that what I'm abandoning is actually what I gather, right? Let go. Am I letting go of the land or of what grows within it, within it, what it yields? Now, why am I pointing this out? Because if you read these verses, knowing nothing about the seventh year, do you think one is allowed to work the field on the seventh year or not? And I think if we erase everything else that we know about the seventh year, these verses tell a story where I am allowed to work the land. Now, not only am I allowed to work the land, but maybe I have to work the land. Because if I don't, what will the needy among me have to eat? Okay, and then this becomes a really interesting story which is a relationship between me and the people in my society who need. And this becomes a year in which I provide only for them. I do not provide for myself. Let's make one more point about these verses before we leave them behind. There's one very central biblical character missing from these verses. Hey, if you look at these verses, who is the very central biblical character missing from these verses, it's of course God. God is completely not a part of the picture of the seventh year in the narrative in Exodus. It is totally a social story. It's about social dynamics between me and the people around me who are in need. So that's narrative number one. Okay, narrative number one, I abandon the ownership, not sure if it's of the land or of the crop. Maybe I'm even allowed to work. I am not allowed to take the fruit, and that goes to the people in need. Let's now move to the narrative in Baikra. I, I think we're a small enough group that if somebody has a comment or a thought, you can share as I scroll down. So here are the verses um, in Baikra. And these, let's read them, and partially let's be attentive to what is different. Okay, are different things emphasized? Um, what is here that wasn't in the Exodus narrative and vice versa? The Lord spoke to Moshe on Mount Sinai. So, I mean, it's already clear that the character missing before is totally back here, right? The opening is the words of God. So God is back in the picture in the Vaikra narrative. Speak to the Israelite people and say to them, when you enter the land that I assign you, the land shall observe a Shabbat of the Lord again. Um, God will appear here again and again. And we have here the word Shabbat, okay? a word that we did not see before. We had before to abandon, to let go but we didn't have the actual word of the Sabbath, okay? Six years you may sow your field, and six years you may prune your vineyard and gather in, and gather in their yield. But in the seventh 
appear, the land shall have a Shabbat. Again, a Shabbat will appear many, many, many times in this narrative of complete rest. Okay, we didn't have rest either in the former narrative. Here we have the word to rest. So it's interesting, who's resting here? Not the owners, but the land. Okay, the land will rest. A Shabbat, again, of the Lord. Okay, God, Hashem, is very, very dominant in this narrative. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap the aftergrowth of your harvest or gather the grapes of your untrimmed vines. Okay, very specific types of work. Okay, this isn't broad descriptions of kinds of work of the land. It's, it's exact, unique things that I do in the land. It shall be a year of complete rest for the land. Okay, again, rest. Rest is a important notion here. But, say these verses, you may eat. Okay, very, very different than what we saw before. This is not only for the poor people to eat. This is the you who is the owner of the land who eats. You may eat whatever the land um, grows, I guess is missing here during the Sabbath, will produce here. You may, male and female slaves, the hired and bound, and bound laborers who live with you, okay? So it's everyone who is connected to me, even my animals, your cattle and your beasts, okay? Everyone who is connected to me may eat on this year. Okay, the, the land shall yield its fruit and you shall eat your fill. Okay, the land will produce. And again, it's me. I am eating the landowner. I am the one eating, um, eating on this year. Okay, I think we can, we've gone far enough. So as we read, we've seen very striking differences. This is a completely different day than the one we saw in Shemot, right? It's a Shabbat. It's a Shabbat for God. I am supposed to not work. Now, maybe there's a purpose to my not working. I'm not allowed to work so that the land will rest, right? My not working enables a different entity to get to some resting, okay? And the fruit is there for me to eat. I am the one who eats on the seventh year. So this is a theological story. Whereas the story in Exodus was social, the story in Vaikra is theological. It's about my relationship with God, okay? There is no commandment here to relinquish ownership. That is not the story. The commandment here is to stop working, a very different one than the ones we saw before. I want to take us on, again, as I scroll down, if anyone has a comment, you're welcome to make. And I want to see how the Tanaitic sources, the sources created in the period of the Mishnah, so edited around the year 200, I want to see how those stories understand and play out the two different narratives. Um, we'll start with a source called the Mechilta, Mechilta de Rabbi Ishmael, and let's hear how they play out the Exodus narrative. And the seventh year, you shall leave it, right? This is a quote from the verses. So that you not say, why did the Torah institute this? Okay, the Torah doesn't want me to ask this question. Is it not so that the poor shall eat it? 
problem, I'll tell myself. I shall gather it in and distribute it to the poor. So what's the idea raised, which in a minute we're going to reject, okay? But the notion raised is the following notion. I know why the Torah commanded me to have the seventh year. It commanded me to have the seventh year so that I can give food to the poor. No problem. I'll collect in all the food and give it out to the poor. Well, responds the Midrash, it is therefore written, and the seventh you shall leave it, whereby we are taught that he, the landowner, must leave it, even to the extent of allowing breaches in the fences. What am I actually supposed to do on the seventh year? I'm actually supposed to go and cut and make holes in my fences. You know, that's amazing. What this Midrash emphasizes is that the purpose is not to have the poor people fed, but it's much more radical than that. The purpose is that people who are usually not landowners feel they are landowners. And how does that take place? Because the people are actually going to walk into the field as they want. It's not about me giving out the food. In that sense, I retain the ownership. But that's not the story here. The story here is that I am letting go so that other people can imagine that freedom of walking in and taking in the crop as they please whenever they want. I find this Midrash extremely moving, and I'll, I'll, I'll share two things about this Midrash. Um, on Rosh Hashanah, one of my neighbors, gave a fantastic sermon in Shur. She stood up and she said, something terrible has happened in my backyard. You're never going to believe what a terrible thing took place in my backyard. I lost ownership over my backyard. And this is the way she opened her sermon about the sabbatical year. Okay? Now, I walk past her home very often. And it has a big fence and it has many buttons you have to push with a code in order to go in. And I thought of this Midrash and the power of this Midrash okay, and how difficult it is for us to open up our fields and our, our homes when sometimes. Um, and that this Midrash taps into the challenge of actually letting go ownership and turning things upside down. The second thing I'll say about this Midrash that I'm almost, I, I'm always a little saddened by its end because its end understands the limitations of humans. And its end, which I didn't read before, says the following. But the sages fenced it, right? They, they said, you have to breach your fences. You have to make holes in your fences. But the, the sages took that law and put a fence around it, limited it and allowed repairs to be made for the general good of tikkun olam. And I, I think basically the end here says, we understand people can't really make holes in their fences. They're not going to go about doing that. Okay? And so we don't really take this commandment to its extreme. Okay? So to put it within human reason, within the reason that we are able to, um, to do. Okay, but so that's the elaboration of the Exodus story. Yes, Pam. 
Before you move on, there's a question in the chat that says, um, are these second verses meant to communicate humans' complete dependence upon God? Wonderful. Yes. Um, Agalia, yeah? Okay. So that is a fantastic question. Aglaia. Aglaia, great. Thank you. Um, good. Fantastic question. And I think you hit on something really, really important about the verses in Vaikra, and it's good that you're taking us back to them. Um, I think I'd say it slightly differently. I'd say it in the following way. It's, I think the purpose of the Shabbat of the seventh year is to remind me that at the end of the day, God is the owner of it all. Okay, so you're right. Part of it is an issue of dependence, but I, want, I think maybe the sabbatical year is really trying to battle the issue of ownership. And that part of it is to tell me, Avital, you're not the owner. God is the owner. Okay, yes. Right, and, and um, in that sense, the Midrash, which elaborates more on Vayikra, basically what it does is it takes to an extreme the command on me to not work. Okay, and it tells me the following. Um, this tells me not, uh, sorry, the verse itself tells me only of sowing and pruning. Whence do I derive the same for plowing and hoeing and weeding and trimming and knocking, right? How do I know that all these other works of the land I'm not allowed to do, okay? Which, which is really important to take me to this extreme of understanding that I am not the owner at all. It's not saying specifically only about sowing and pruning, but it's telling me I can't do anything on my land, okay? From the inverted order, your field not, and your vineyard not every labor in the field and in your vineyard. It, I don't want to get into the technicalities of how the Midrash here learns it, but you see that from the order of the words in the verse, the Midrash makes the claim that any work in the field is forbidden. Okay, and now um, I, I, I'll take us to this funny chart I made because I think it emphasizes um, um, the two, the two narratives, okay? Both sections do away with social gaps, okay? Whether um, it's to tell me, Avital, you're not the owner, or it's to enable the poor to come and have a year where they feel that they are the owners. The issue is breaking here social gaps. It's a year of breaking barriers, right? But each book, each narrative does it slightly differently, and so the focus is a little different, and the reason is different. In Shmot, in Exodus, the purpose is to do good with the poor, right? To put, to, to make sure that for this year, the poor have more to eat. And basically, it's like putting on a show for a year, right? On the seventh year, the poor people become the owners. Okay, so we're, 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 we're I, don't, I don't know if we're, we're playing a game because actually people will have more to eat that year. Right, but in the sense of ownership, they're going to walk into the field for one year as though they are the owners. But in Vayikra, the story is very different. The purpose is to clarify equality because at the end of the day, nobody owns anything. And I think the purpose is to tell me, Avital, all those other six years, that's when you're putting on a show. When you play as if you're the owner of anything, right? That's when you're putting on a show and forgetting that actually everyone's equal and God is the one who is in control or the owner of it all and so on. 
Okay, so the two um, the two narratives actually um, have different effects on me as a human being, focus on different things in society. And what I find really interesting is that Shabbat, the Shabbat that we have every week, actually holds in the Torah the same exact two narratives. Um, the narrative, which is to clarify equality and that I'm not the owner, we can find in Shemot chapter 20, but the seventh day is a Shabbat for the Lord, your God. You shall not do any work. You, your son or your daughter, your male female slave, or your cattle or the stranger who is within your settlement. Okay, so this is a narrative of Shabbat that we know well. We are not allowed to work. But there's another narrative of Shabbat, which I'm not sure we always pay attention to. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from labor. Now listen to this. Why? In order that your ox and your ass may rest, and that your bondman and stranger may be refreshed. What an amazing intuition, right? The, the statement here is that the purpose of me stopping on Shabbat is to enable other people to rest. In other words, there's a recognition that if I don't stop, all the people in my system, whether it's because they work for me or they support me or they help me, also can't rest. And so the, I stop in order to enable others to rest. Just like on the seventh year, I stop working so that the poor people can come in and eat. Okay, it's a fascinating narrative of Shabbat. Okay, I'll say again, in Israel, we have a lot of arguments here over laws of not working on Shabbat. Should it be mandatory not to work or not? And it's, it's a very complicated thing. So for example, in Israel on Shabbat, if you work on Shabbat, you get paid 150%. So if I close all the restaurants and all the movie theaters and all the stores on Shabbat, I am preventing people from a day of work where they can make one and a half times the money, one and a half times the pay. There's tremendous social implications to that. Or another dilemma. Let's say I'm a person who goes out every Friday night. That's how I celebrate my Shabbat. Am I going to close everything off and not allow that? So how I, and, and on the other hand, if I want to make sure that there's a day of rest, if I don't stop, nobody else can stop either, right? My environment can't stop either. So how do I make sure that everyone gets a day of rest? So those are dilemmas that I think we a little bit hear in the different narratives around Shabbat and around the seventh year. Um, if there are thoughts or questions you can share and we'll take one step further on. So when we move from the theoretical to the practical, we now have a few contradictions, right? Between the different narratives that if I need to now do Shemitah, I don't know how to deal with. Okay? Number one, am I allowed to work or am I not allowed to work? Right? Because in Vaikra, it sounded like I'm not allowed to work, I'm not allowed to do anything. Whereas in Shemot, it sounds like maybe I should be working so that there's something for the poor to eat. Now, moreover, in Vaikra, it says I am allowed to eat. So now there's two contradictions I have to deal with. If I'm not allowed to do any work, how is there going to be any fruit there in the land? And number two, 
wait a minute. Shmot says, I'm not allowed to eat. And Vaikra says, I'm the only one who's supposed to eat. So how am I going to deal with that contradiction? Okay. So again, we'll have different um, midrashim, different um, um, interpretations of the Torah, pull in different directions in response to those tensions. Um, both, these are two texts called the Michilta, again, edited around the year 200. And they both start with putting the two verses that contradict each other, one versus the other, right? The first verse is, and the poor of your people shall eat it. And the second verse is, for you and your manservant and your maidslave. In other words, so decide, is it for the poor people or is it for me? Okay, how do we deal with that contradiction? How are these verses to be reconciled. And one suggestion is when the fruits are many, all eat. And when they are few, they are for you and your manservant and your maidservant and so on. Okay? So this Midrash makes the claim that if there's plenty, everybody gets. But if there isn't plenty, the landowner is the one who takes precedence. Okay? Um, other interpretations. Say the opposite. Most of it goes to the poor. Okay, so we see that um, the tension between the verses and the different narratives continued on, didn't remain only in the Torah, but, but played out as later readers continued reading, um, reading the Torah and interpreting. Part of the way um, both the um, respect for the fruit and um, what comes out of the land on the seventh day, the big responsibility I have towards others um, and the uniqueness, the uniqueness of the crop of this seventh year. Part of the term with which um, we express this uniqueness is holiness. And fruit that grows on the seventh year is considered Holy, it, it holds holiness within it. Now, this holiness stems from a legitimacy to eat the fruit, right? Vayikra says, It's for you to eat. The fruit is for you to eat. That's interesting. And this takes me to the second point I said I would make, which is about a human mistake, that one that we typically do when it comes to food. And um, the Torah relates, the Torah relates to this mistake a few times, always using this expression, the expression that the food is for you to eat, kind of a double um, emphasis of the legitimacy to eat, okay? Um, and I want to take us to two other places in the Torah where we have this expression. The first is in Genesis, from the first moment um, that I'm allowed to eat, okay? And we'll, we'll read the verses together, but this is the expression we're looking for, right? That the food is for you in order to eat it. So let's remind ourselves what happens at the very, very end of the first chapter of Genesis. God said, 
see, I give you every seed-bearing plant that is upon all the earth and every tree that has seed-bearing fruit. They shall be yours for food. Okay, that's our important expression. They shall be yours for food. And to all the animals on the land and to all the birds in the sky and to everything that creeps on earth in which these there is the breath of life, I give all the green plants for food. And it was so. So this is, look, it's the moment of inception of the world, right? And it's, people are already created. And God says to people, the fruit is here for you to eat. And very surprisingly, the Talmud gets very nervous. Okay, the Talmud text edited around the 5th, 6th century, right? One of the most important texts um, in, in our Jewish tradition raises a concern that is very surprising. Rabbi Yudas says that Rav says, meat was not permitted to Adam for consumption as it is written. Okay, so first of all, you know, the people, Adam, Adam and Eve, Adam, who was created in the first chapter of Genesis, is not allowed to eat meat. People are only allowed to eat meat after the mabul, um, after the flood, I'm sorry. Okay, people were only allowed to eat meat after the flood. It's only kind of a next layer. And for some reason, the, the, the rabbis feel they need to emphasize that at this moment. Okay, meat was not permitted to Adam eat at that moment. How do we know that? Because God says, and God said, behold, I've given you every herb that brings forth seeds, which is upon the face of the earth and every tree in which the fruit of trees that have given you forth seed for you, it shall be for food and for every animal of the earth, right? We just read the verses. And now the Talmud makes a very interesting emphasis, right? This food is for you and for every animal and not the animals of the earth to you. What's happening here? For some reason, the rabbis are concerned that once I am allowed to eat fruit, me as a human being, I might think I'm also allowed to eat animals. And so the rabbis say, this is why God emphasizes that the fruit is there for you, for people, for animals to eat. And that in the background, there's an emphasis. Remember, people, animals are not for you to eat. So there is a concern that when people are given legitimacy to eat, they take that legitimacy overboard. They don't accept the boundaries that have to do with food. Okay? And I want to give you one more example where that happens. And that is in Exodus, when people are given manna to eat. When the Israelites saw it, okay, this new strange thing on the earth, they said to one another, right, they've just come out of Egypt and they come out of their tents and there's something on the ground and they say, what is it? In Hebrew, ma'hu, okay, manhu. It's a play because in manna in Hebrew is man, which is the ma'hu. Um, it is manna for they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, this is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. Right? This, is, this is now the food that you're going to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather as much of it as, you, as each of you requires to eat, 
and all milk to a person, for as many of you as there are. Each of you shall fetch for those in his tent. Okay, so the people were commanded, take an omer, a certain quantity per person. Okay, so that's the commandment. Go take a, a certain amount per person. The Israelites did so, some gathering much, some gathering little. So did the people listen? No, right? They didn't just gather an omer for each person. Some gathered more, some gathered less. Maybe it's a description here of each person taking according to how many people were in his tent, possible. But when they measured it by the omer, he who had gathered much had no excess, and he who had gathered little had no deficiency. Okay, so there's some miracle that happens here regarding the quantity, but the people themselves are not paying, are not paying attention, are not obeying the limitation that has to do with the quantity. They had gathered as much as they needed to eat. Okay, and Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over until the morning. And did they listen to that? But they paid no attention to Moses. Some of them left of it until morning and it became infested with maggots and stank, and Moses was angry with them. Okay, and so on and so forth. I want you to notice in the Hebrew the same expression, lachem leochla, this is for you to eat. And we have again an example where something that is given for you in order to eat is a moment where the people don't accept the boundaries, okay, where they go overboard where they take too much. Now we see it in Genesis at the moment of creation. And we see it again in Shemot when we come out of Egypt. That when we are given something to eat, we as humans, we go overboard. It's hard for us to accept that limitation. And it's interesting to hear the same pair of words when we come to the sabbatical year. There's an attempt here to teach me limitations around food. This takes us to the third point, which is how do I treat food in a holy way? What does this look like to treat food in a holy way? So there's four points, four um, attitudes, states of mind, activities, that express a person's acceptance of the food being holy. Now, I have to say more specifically, when it, these are four points that I am required to abide by with the food of Shemitah, right? If I now, this year, which is the seventh year, if I go outside, I actually have here a plum tree, I think, in my backyard, okay? If it grows this year, I can pick it and eat it. I can't sell it. There's a few things I can't do to it. We'll, we'll talk about it in a minute, but I can pick it and I can eat it. But it has holiness to it. So what does that mean that it has holiness to it? Okay, so I want to point out four things. The first point is the following. And in order to explain it, I'm going to one minute transport us to the world of the temple. In the world of the temple, when Bet HaMikdash existed, if I wanted to give a gift, to Beta Mikdash, right? Sometimes I was very moved and I wanted to give a gift to the temple. How would I do that? I would, um, what do I have here? I have this pen, okay? I wanna, I'm gonna give this pen to Beta Mikdash. 
And then I'm not allowed to use it, right? Because it now has a holiness. It belongs to the holy. And then I suddenly remember this is a very special pen. My kid passed their test with this pen. They love this pen. I can't give it to Beta Migdash. So I can redeem it. How do I redeem it? I have to give the value in money plus another 20%. I give that to Beta Migdash, okay? The money plus the 20% to Beta Migdash. And now this is redeemed. The, the, the fruit of Shemitah has holiness in such a way that it is unredeemable. So now we'll look at the text that describes that, but it's, a, it's not straightforward. So it's good that we know what we ought to expect. One purchases meat with sabbatical year produce. Okay, I take the plum that grew in my backyard and I want to take meat to replace it. Okay, right? With a pen, I had no problem doing it. What happens with the sabbatical produce? Both this, the produce, and that, the meat, must be removed during the sabbatical year. In other words, both retain the holiness. Okay? Suddenly, both the pen and the money will retain the holiness, and I'm not allowed to use them in a not holy way. The meat may be eaten only as long as the produce in exchange for which it was produced may be eaten. In other words, they both suddenly take on the laws of the seventh year um, if he purchased fish in exchange for the meat. The meat emerges out of this holy state and the fish assumes the holy state, but the plum, the produce of the seventh year, remains always holy. Okay, So the first quality is that you can't undo the holiness of Shemitah. It remains within the fruit. That's point number one. Point number two. Um, I have this only in Hebrew, and so I will translate. The Ramban, who's an interpreter of the Torah, um, explains what it means that the land is, again, we have this term, lachem leochla, is for you to eat. What does it mean? that the land is simply for me to eat? Well, it's I'm allowed to eat it, but I am not allowed to do business with it. Now, it's really interesting. We're in a world where I think we can understand maybe what that means. I can use it for itself. I cannot use it to take advantage of it to make more. Okay, right? Business is often a form where, um, where I make money out of money, right? Where I'm utilizing something beyond its initial use, okay? The fruit of Shemitah is there to be eaten. It's not there in order to do business. So that's number two. So the holiness is always retained and I'm not allowed to utilize it to do more business. Number three. It's to eat and not to lose. What does that mean, not to lose? I often think that one of the prime things I can do to something I own is to throw it out. Right? I can't throw out something that I don't own. But one of the symbols of ownership is, well, it takes us back to the beginning, is the letting go. Right? I can't let go of something that's not mine. When my kids 
fight over something and one says, it's mine, then I often, I don't want to share it. It's mine. I say the only reason you can share it is because it's yours. Right? You can't share something that isn't yours. So in the same way, you can't throw out something that isn't yours. Okay, so on the sabbatical year, the fruit I am not allowed to throw out. Now, I just want to, I want us to play out the, the implication. Okay, when I pick this plum, let's say I want to peel it. I don't feel like eating the peel. I'm not allowed to throw out that peel. It's holy. I'm not allowed to throw it out. So it's a big question what you do. But people who eat fruits that have the holiness of the sabbatical year often have a compost because they're not allowed to throw out a holy piece of fruit, not the pit and not the peel, even the part that you can't eat. They're not garbage, they're holy. Okay, so it has tremendous implications for how I'm going to treat every aspect, every piece of this fruit. Okay, fourth point. And then we will kind of summarize and uh, open it up to your comments and thoughts if there are. So the fourth point, I'll let the Rambam say for me. The produce of the seventh year is given over for eating, drinking, smearing, which means I can use it for anointing, for oils and stuff like that, lighting lights, and dyeing. I can use it for, for, for light, for fire, um, and to dye, to use it to dye cloth and stuff like that. From the oral tradition they learned, it shall be even for lighting lights and for dye. Okay, that it's not just for food, but also for these very limited other things. How is eating and drinking? What is it? How do I eat and drink fruits that have the holiness of the sabbatical year? It is only permissible to eat that which it is its way to be eaten and to drink that which it is its way to be drunk. What does that mean? I'll, I'll take a minute to make a little bit fun of Americans as an Israeli, or at least I'll make fun of New Yorkers. Every time I go to New York, they make juice out of another thing that really is supposed to be eaten as a salad. I don't know if you guys have that experience, okay? But they'll make juice out of, right, some green leaf that really should be eaten. So the sabbatical year, according to the Rambam here, is not a year to try out some new juice from a vegetable that is usually eaten or from a fruit that is usually eaten. We'll read one more line and then we'll try and ask ourselves what this means. And one should not alter produce from their characteristic state in the same way that one does not, okay, alter priestly tithe on the second year. He should not eat cooked something the way which is usually eaten raw. And he should not eat raw something the way of which is usually to be eaten cooked. It's a year where I am told not to be creative, right? The holiness of the fruit of the Shemitah, of the seventh year, is expressed in me limiting myself. This is not a year for experimenting, or this is not fruit on which I should make experiments and new attempts and new tries. I should eat the way it is intended to be. And I should drink it the way it's intended to be drink, drunk. And if usually it's eaten raw, it's just a year to eat it raw and not to try some new fancy thing. Okay, so let's just summarize these four qualities. And maybe it'll become clear 
why they ring to me of sustainability. Okay, they, There are four things that we saw that um, kind of sum up how we can um, play out the holiness of the sabbatical year and the fruit. First of all, it's holy. It has that characteristic and that's not something that it can lose. Number two, it's not there for making more money. Number three, I cannot throw it out. And number four, or any aspect of it. And number four, I should use it plainly in a straightforward way, the way it's usually meant to be used. And I ask myself if we took these values to food in general, um, maybe to produce of the land in general, if we would find ourselves in a world that is more sustainable, okay, that is more long lasting, that can be there uh, to sustain beyond our, our own existence. So I wanna summarize the kind of um, tra trail we took this last hour together. So first of all, we saw that the Torah has two different narratives about what the seventh year is actually about. Is it about me making sure that I relinquish ownership so that the poor people on that year can take ownership over the produce of the land? Or is it a year in which I rest in order to remind myself that I'm not really the ultimate owner, that God is ultimately the owner of all, okay? And that that kind of reflect back on the other six years where I do play out being owner. We saw that expanded to either not being allowed to do any of the work or to actually making holes and cutting my fences and letting everybody in. Okay. We then saw that that relates to a confusion since this takes me to the food of the land. There's a confusion that people often have between the legitimacy to eat and being owners. And the seventh year tries to pull those two apart. Avital, you can eat, but you're not the owner. Remember that eating doesn't make you owner. When you have the right to eat, that doesn't make you the owner of the thing. And how do I treat something when I'm not the owner? I don't make money off of it. I don't play out my imagination and creativity on it. I don't throw it out, any aspect of it, and I treat it as holy. Yes, okay, thank you. There are any thoughts or questions I'm happy does anyone have any questions from that really meaningful um, learning? I have to tell you that in many kitchens, um, many people don't, um, don't take on the challenge of treating fruit in the holy, in, as holy on the seventh year, but there definitely are those who do. Um, and there are many kitchens where there is this year and not every year, a kind of bowl, which is a compost, a compost bowl for the remnants and the peels and so on um, that people don't eat but have to treat with holiness. So, so it's actually a kind of exercise people do this year in Israel, which is fascinating. I had a comment if that is helpful. I don't know if it's helpful. Okay. Um, I'm a world history teacher. Um, so <laughs> I also, I have a PhD in history. So, but um, one of the things that I brought up um, to my class one time that just um, speaking about, um, um, you know, Exodus and, you know, all of that and everything though, one of the things that I did bring up though is that um, 
about how humans understand um, holiness, you know, things that um, belong to God, these are holy things. And so I just asked the students um, to consider, well, if we treat, you know, like a Torah as a holy, you know, um, what if humans actually considered themselves also, you know, just humans, not as beings that belong to themselves, but beings that belong to God? How would we treat each other then if we understood that we are, all humans are, ultimately, even though we don't like to think about it this way, ultimately belong to God. God's the only owner and everything he creates, he owns. So you can't treat he other humans. And a lot of the students just looked at me like, okay, I don't like this idea though, but it is, <laughs> it is true though. What if we did treat other humans and ourselves as if we didn't belong to ourselves, we belong to God ultimately. So it's just a yeah. comment. Mm -hmm. Right. I think it's a fascinating exercise. Yeah. I often feel that the issue at heart with holiness is utility, mm -hmm. that I'm not allowed to utilize it for my own needs. For example, you're not allowed to make Beta Mikdash, um, the temple, a shortcut. Right. If I want to get to the other side, I'm not, I have to walk around, use it for a shortcut. So I think I totally agree that if we, laid that out, not only on holy space and on holy things like fruits and vegetables, but also, I mean, we wish, right, we would do it with each other. Mm -hmm. What a world it would be. Thank you, you for know. that. Um, anybody else? Jeannie or Lori, Nancy, Julia, Jonathan. Oh, Julia, go ahead. Hi. Yes. Thank you so much for this. Um, okay. Thinking about eventually this year will be ending. What do we take away into the next six years? How how can we have this experience like transform how we do the next six years until the next week to year? Right. So look, it's I feel it's easy to say, let's remember to give to the poor and let's remember we're not owners. Playing that what that actually looks like is a little bit harder. I think the the last points I made. Um, about what it means to treat food as holy, to me, do um, um, sound familiar with some of the talk from the world that takes uh, puts a lot of weight in sustainability. And that's why I went there, because I think there is wisdom there that maybe we can take to making our world more sustainable and long-lasting. Um, for sure, I mean, for sure, throwing out less and for sure, limiting our creativity. Don't try out so much. Use things with more simplicity and straightforwardness. I think there's some values there that maybe could be helpful to how the world could be more sustainable. Do we have time for at least one more question? Is there anyone else who would like to, to speak up? No? Well, then thank you very much for your time today, Rabbi. Um, it was very meaningful and we really appreciate it. And for everyone in the room and for those who will later access the recordings later, um, oh, did you have a question? Oh, we, it looks like we have one question from Nancy Ackerman, so I will let her let her ask it. I was actually just applauding. Thank you all. Thank you. Okay, and then um, we hope you'll be able to join us for more programs live at Midrash. We have another one tomorrow at 1 p.m. Pacific time and next week and into the end of May. Um, we are always learning here. And thank you to our partner as well, Hebrew Educational Alliance, and have a wonderful rest of your day, everyone. Thank you. Thank you all. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Bait Midrash podcast. 
Remember that you can join our email list at valleybatemadrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.